Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles again to Colossians 2. Colossians 2, and we made our way particularly through verses 13, 14, and 15 last week, but I have to tell you, I feel I left a lot on the table, as it were, with verse 15, and there's just such rich food and encouragement for us that I think it is fitting for us to come back. So if your Bibles are open to Colossians 2, what I'd like to do, again, is go back to verse 8 and just read this particular paragraph, and uh, even though I'm not preaching through verses 8 uh, all the way to verse 15, it gives you a little larger context of some of the things that are in Paul's heart as he writes this letter to the Colossian believers. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority." In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. You know, many years ago when our kids were a lot younger, we had some friends who lived on the other side of town, and we enjoyed a really great relationship with them in their home. They were in ours, kids about the same age, took several trips together. Um, Seth, I should have asked your permission because I'm going to give one of your famous lines, but this won't embarrass him. But one night we decided that we were going to prank them. And I have to confess, I didn't grow up doing this kind of thing, so I kind of feel like I've, I've found a, a part of a lost part of my childhood by participating in things like this. And our four kids uh, were, were much, much younger. Seth was just a little guy. And we stopped by the, I think it was the Dollar General store, and we picked up a pack of toilet paper. And uh, we also picked up a little shaving cream. And we were going to go to their house. And uh, we weren't going to, like, vandalize the place, because you can do that whole toilet papering thing in a way that's not really a blessing to others. So we wanted to teach our kids the right way to prank people. And so we wrapped the mailbox with toilet paper, and we wrapped the bushes in their, in their front beds with toilet paper, and then my wife and I think one or two of my daughters took the shaving cream and wrote messages of love on their sidewalk for them. And we did this under the cover of darkness, and then... And, and ran away without being detected. We had parked the, the car up the street. And as we got back in the car and drove away, you know, there's that buzz of excitement and your adrenaline's going a little bit. We did it and we didn't get caught. And won't they think it's uh, amazing that, you know, friends would love them in this particular way. And as we're driving away, Seth, who was just a little guy, maybe five or six at that time, I don't really remember, but from the back seat, strapped into his little car seat, I hear him say, I feel like I've sinned. <laughs> 
And his conscience was so tender and sensitive that what we had done, even though it wasn't, you know, nobody would say it was vandalism or uh, it would have been easily cleaned up. There was something in him because I guess, you know, sneaking in and we were saying, be real quiet. We're not, we're not gonna tell the Myers anything about this. You know, we were kind of sworn to this family secrecy thing. His, his conscience was just grieved. You know, and I think a lot of times we, we move away from certain situations in life and we feel we have sinned. And often we actually have. I mean, oh, that the issues of conscience could be easily, you know, dealt with and explained. And well, you know, son, it, it's actually not sin. It's in a little different category and let's talk about that. But, you know, often we, we just can't shake those feelings of guilt. And accompanying that guilt often is that sense of fear. How does God feel about me at this moment? And you know, even, even those moments where you say, I, I've asked God to forgive me, but I just can't shake that sense that what I've done is something unforgivable or, or maybe what I've done just so grieved him that he doesn't even like me anymore. We all wrestle with feelings like that, don't we? Where do we stand with God? How does he feel about us? And you know, sometimes these very thoughts arise from the powers of darkness. It's not just an internal matter of your own conscience, but there are scriptures, and one of them is before us, and others that we're going to package with us this morning that demonstrate to us that Satan is called, here's one scripture we'll come to, the accuser of the brothers. He's also described as the one who has the power of death. That is, until Jesus stepped in and accomplished his work that we've been studying last week and this week. And when Christ stepped in, the testimony of this word is that the rulers and authorities, those forces of darkness that would often bully us with accusations and would bully us and intimidate us with the fear of a, a coming death, have actually been disarmed. Christ not only made a, a sacrifice for our sins in order that God might justly forgive us all of our sins by His death on the cross, but he actually disarmed the powers of darkness, stripping them, if you will, of their weapons, and this text says openly humiliating them. Now that's really powerful truth for people who sometimes struggle in the backseat of, of life's journey, as it were, like, I feel like I've done something that would make God really mad. So last week, we, just by way of quick review, we noted in verse 13 that all of us were, at least at one time, in a condition of death. And that, that spiritual death also, also has with it a spiritual alienation. Sin always alienates us from God and it alienates us from other people. Then secondly, we looked at it, the, the wonderful resurrection that's spoken of in this passage. A resurrection to life. Thirdly, a work of pardon. And we were amazed to see that this is a comprehensive forgiveness that God blesses us with. He cancels that deadly personal debt. We were the ones who rang up that debt. We are the ones who deserve to be condemned and judged forever for it, but it's been canceled. And then finally, we began to look at the triumph of Christ. And that's what I want to park in today for the time that we have together this morning. You know, there is a darkness in this valley that most people... Uh, are not fully aware of. And those who are, are often unwilling to speak of. And it's a spiritual darkness, isn't it? And it's interesting how, it, how it's clothed or presented to us. 
Often the, the darkness is clothed in the false light of high moral values, family values, if you will. It's clothed in a, a false light of strong work ethics and religious language that employs even some of the same terminology that the true followers of Jesus use. That darkness can also manifest itself in the above average rates of suicide and opioid addictions. I mean, we hear that all the time, don't we? We see it on billboards, the warnings, the cautions, the, the resources that would help people who are so addicted. And then accompanying that is abuse of every kind. Stories almost every day demonstrating that, that people are in darkness. But this passage speaks of an act of Christ disarming the powers of darkness. And if you will look, at, look again at the text with me, you'll see uh, the, the disarming of rulers and authorities. And what Jesus is described as doing here is, is to fully expose. He is or stripping off something or taking away something. And the term rulers and authorities actually has reference to spiritual forces. So he would not, Paul, when he was writing this, would, would not be talking about Roman forces or even Greek cultural forces. No, if you run through the scriptures, you learn several things uh, about these particular powers. And I, I want to just touch on a few of these things. So uh, if, if you want to turn there quickly, I'm going to move through this little section very rapidly. But I want you to know what the Bible says about these powers. Because again, remember, the the primary weapons that they use against us are accusation and intimidation, fear of death. Accusation, bringing your sin against you as if it would enslave or overwhelm you. But notice some things before we get to this particular text that other scriptures tell us. Back in Colossians 1 verse 16, we read, they are created by Christ. Created by Christ. Colossians 1 16 tells us that by Him, that is Jesus, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. There are some who have the idea that Jesus and the devil are kind of equals, uh, maybe even sharing some some previous existence together, but they're kind of on equal ground, and and Jesus seems to have a little bit of an advantage right now, but all things considered, uh, it's, it's... an equal fight. It's not even close. The devil is a created being. Every demonic force is a created being, and they've been created by Jesus. That's what Colossians 1.16 tells us. Second thing, they are portrayed as warring against Christ and his people. Ephesians 6 verse 12 reminds us that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So they are described as being at war with Christ and his people. Here's a third point. Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21, actually reminds us they are inferior to Christ. Inferior to Christ. God, verse 20, is described as working in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority. There's an enormous gap between Jesus and these principalities or powers, rulers, and authorities. 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Number four, they are subordinate to Christ. Colossians 2 verse 10, Paul writes, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. There are purposes at work beyond our comprehension. Why God even allows these forces of darkness to exist, I do not know. I cannot describe for you fully or explain that to you clearly. But one thing I am certain of, the Scripture always portrays them, and this is one of those passages, as being subordinate to Christ the King. Fifthly, they will be destroyed at a future time by Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 24 tells us when the end comes, when He, that is Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom to God the Father, it will be after He destroys every rule and every authority and power. And then finally, these rulers and authorities are limited in power by Christ. Paul wrote back in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, the conclusion of that beautiful section where he's talking about nothing is going to be able to separate us from the love of Christ. He says in verse 38, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, there's one of our two terms, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, we are not unaware of their presence, and often it can become a, a, a fearful thing, an intimidating thing when they come against you, and they manifest themselves in many different ways, don't they? Some of you could probably give testimonies and experiences as I could, uh, just knowing you are under spiritual attack, but it's important that we remember these particular truths, lest their intimidation and their false accusation wield a greater authority over our hearts and souls than actually God ever intended. Here in this passage, the Holy Spirit reveals to us through Paul that these rulers and authorities have been disarmed by Christ. Now let's look a little more closely at some additional scriptures and ask the question, what have they been disarmed of? Because in this passage, they're pictured as holding the certificate of debt and the threat of death over us. How do the powers of darkness use the record of our sin debt against us? Well, this is where I would, I would point you to two different scriptures. Weapon number one, fear of condemnation. Fear of condemnation. Satan is described, as I mentioned earlier, as the accuser of our brothers. And that passage is Revelation 12, verse 10. Ken was just there a few weeks ago as he led us through that series on the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in verse 10 we read, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. There is something of a future view in this passage, but when you put it in its larger context, the story of redemption, what Christ accomplished on the cross, was also a throwing down of the evil one, and it was a disarming of this one who day and night accuses people like you and me. Go to Zechariah 3. That's an Old Testament prophet. It's near the end of the Old Testament. And there's a beautiful story here in this prophecy uh, that has been given through Zechariah. Just to give you a little bit of context, Zechariah was a priest who returned from Babylon with Zerubbabel in about 538 B.C., and he began his ministry in 520 B.C. So he's a contemporary of the prophet Haggai, and the main work before the returning exiles uh, at that particular point 
was to rebuild the temple and to restore temple worship. So priests had a really important role to play. The story we're going to read is of a dramatic moment in the restoration process when the high priest, Joshua, is being accused of Satan as disqualified from ministry. And so in Zechariah 3, let let me get there. I'm not coordinated enough to talk and turn at the same time. Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan before the angel of the Lord. Or, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Let me pause right there. This particular passage really is is quite overwhelming at the first. Here is the one, the accuser of the brother, actually bringing an accusation against the high priest in Israel. Night and day he is pictured as entering the presence of God to confront our maker with charges regarding our sin. Night and day the great deceiver prosecutes a case against God's people. And you know what is particularly fearful to me is that he doesn't have to fabricate all of his accusations. Some I'm sure he does because he is a deceiver and a liar and has always been one. But there's nothing in the text that says the accusation that Satan is bringing against Joshua at this particular point is fabricated. As a matter of fact, it even confirms it in verse 3 that Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And you shouldn't think of garments that are just soiled from yard work or rolling around on the playground. No, these are actually ceremonially defiled, covered with vile material, the kind of material that would would make Joshua not only personally unclean in the sight of God, but would disqualify him as representing Israel entering the Holy of Holies as the high priest. Well, if the whole point of God's mission for you at this moment is to come out of exile, rebuild the temple, and restore temple worship, how do you do that without a high priest? And the answer is you don't. Something has to happen. So the accusation is justified at this particular moment. And you know, we all know that many of the accusations that Satan would bring into God's presence against us are absolutely true. That's what, going back to Colossians 3, makes that whole record of debt concept so fearful. And I touched on that last week. How big would that record of of debt be? How many pages could you print out if you created a computer file, or how big would the billboard on the side of the highway have to be that that would catalog all of your sins and mine? But the Lord, verse 2, says to Satan, the Lord, and notice that's in all caps, Yahweh, the self-existent God, the one who has no beginning, has no end, the great I am, Yahweh rebuke you, O Satan. Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a a brand plucked from the fire? 
Look at verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Oh, and what a word of comfort and encouragement this is to a sinful man like Joshua. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. You see the parallels? Real sin, real corruption, real disqualification from life, a life of service to God, and God himself intervenes and says, I've removed it and will clothe you with the vestures that you need to fulfill all my holy will. What else can Satan say at a moment like that? That's the work of the gospel. God doesn't wink at our sin. God never just kind of excuses it or moves it aside and says, you know, we're just not going to talk about that. No, he actually deals with it through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, removes the record of that completely, and even though Colossians 2 doesn't speak specifically of this, part of that work of salvation is to clothe us in the perfect righteousness of Jesus So you know how you can stand here on a Sunday morning and sing these great hymns of the faith and lift your soul in absolute confidence that he is the one before the throne who represents you? The gospel. Because God really does something for you. Clears the record of your debt. Takes it out of the way and positions you as a servant, a a priest, if you will, to the Most High God. So when God wipes that old record clean, Not only will the files never be accessed again, but the accuser of the brothers has no case. When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, the vast majority of which is true, he doesn't have to make it up, but we continue to sing, upward I look and see him there. I don't look inward for for comfort. I don't look out to you and and seek those words of affirmation, Danny, you're, you're actually a really good guy. I mean, I can self-justify or I can community justify, but that justification doesn't last. I need God's justification and you need God's justification. And we have it. Upward I look and see him there. And who am I looking at? Jesus, the one who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless one died, my sinful soul is now counted free. That's justification. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. How powerful. Let's look at the second weapon. Weapon number two is the fear of death. And Hebrews tells us of our enemy's use of this particular weapon. Now in Hebrews 10, or 2 verse 10, we're reading of the work of Jesus. It was fitting that he, Jesus Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation Perfect through suffering, verse 10. Now let's skip to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So when Satan comes and not only accuses you of your sinfulness, and begins to bully you, intimidate you with those thoughts of, you know what, I should die. I deserve to die. I'm afraid of death. What's going to happen to me after I die? Will God, will there be a place in heaven for me? What if I haven't done enough good works in this life? What if I haven't attended church or given enough of my money away or helped the poor? What if I haven't done enough? And what if God doesn't accept me and I don't want to die? 
Yeah, we're, we're afraid as a culture of death. And if you don't have some of these things in place, it makes really good sense. I read a brief article this week that was very compelling to me in many ways. And the author is not writing from the, the perspective of a follower of Jesus, but he writes, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. And in this article, the author goes on to write, it's a fear strong enough to compel us to force kale down our throats. <laughs> Run sweatily on a treadmill at 7 a.m. on a Monday morning. And then he goes on to describe in, let's say not so polite terms, but we really are willing to go to a, a stranger to be medically examined from head to toe if necessary, a doctor, to figure out what's wrong with us. Yeah, we're willing to go to great lengths to avoid death. death. But then he writes this, and listen. But our impending end isn't just a benevolent supplier of healthy behaviors. Researchers have found death can determine our prejudices, whether we give to charity or wear sun, a sunscreen. Our desire to be famous, what type of leader we vote for, how we name our children, and even how we conduct ordinary business. Of course, it terrifies us. Death anxiety appears to be at the core of several mental health disorders, including health anxiety, panic disorder, and depressive disorders. You think there's a connection between some of the use of opioids and a fear of death? I'll guarantee you there is. And most of us are too scared to talk about it. And I suspect if you were honest, you'd say, yeah, there are things about death that are a little scary to me. But our God is never afraid to talk about it. And as a matter of fact, in his kindness, he leads us to face it head on and recognize, first of all, death is coming for all of us. It's inevitable. But that doesn't have to create some kind of anxiety or even disorder in our souls. Rather, he wants us to know that there is a way through that hour of death that actually is blessed. And the example of Christ on the cross is really significant for us that when he was in that hour of dying, his testimony of faith was so clear, so simple, so profound, we often miss it, but he actually says at that last moment, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he breathed his last. There was no fear in death. For Jesus, and there should not be for his followers either. And the devil has used the fear of death as a weapon to control and enslave people, and we sell our souls to him in the hopes that we can avoid it. And sometimes it's a short-term uh, slavery, and, and we run the route of all kinds of things, some of which would almost be humorous, but you think about it, that an effort to avoid death will, will, will enslave ourselves to cosmetic surgery, to beauty products, to health plans. We want to stave off this great enemy. But even long-term and at a more deeply spiritual and, and personal level, we will concoct stories and legends, entire systems of faith that try to answer the fearful questions in our souls concerning that coming moment of death. Can I give you a brief summary of how the Bible describes death and how it explains it? 
There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that is very helpful for us. And in that passage, Paul describes death as having a sting. And he says the sting of death that is what makes death so painful for humanity is sin. Every time you attend a funeral and it's good for the soul, but you need to look at that loved one, friend, and sometimes you even attend funerals not because you knew the deceased, but you, you know one of his or her family members, you're there to support them. But every time you attend a funeral, you ought to think to yourself, we did this to ourselves. That is the human race by its sin brought this into the world. That's a stinging thought, isn't it? Now, I don't mean that you're personally culpable for the family member who gets cancer. My mother died of cancer uh, 19 years ago, and that was just a horrific season for all of us to watch her, uh, a beloved and godly woman, die. So it's not that I say, what did I do that God killed my mom? No, that, that's, that's a different train of thought, but rather the fact that we're here again putting a loved one into the ground is a reminder that we are a sinful human race. The sting of death is sin. But then Paul goes on to write, and the power of sin is the law, God's law. What is also inescapable is that God actually is supreme over all, and his law ultimately matters, whether you want to recognize it or not. And when you violate his law, that is sin. That sin is the sting of death. Do you see how it all fits together? But he doesn't leave us there just kind of groping in darkness to say, well, how do we remedy this? No, this is where the, the specifics of the gospel enter in. Jesus came into the world, lived, died, rose again, sacrificed himself as a substitute on the cross so that our sins might be taken out of the way. We're back to Colossians 2 and what Paul is saying in verse, verses 13, 14, and 15 that God has canceled the record of debt that stands against his legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He has triumphed in this powerful way but our part is to believe. I pause right here and ask, what is your plan for dealing with your coming death? What's your plan? Some people just want to ignore it altogether, and they've concocted ideas that, you know, they, they just cease to exist at death. That's a false notion about your death. Some people have all kinds of other mythologies and stories that try to help us cope with it. Some people believe you'll, you'll become an angelic presence in heaven. And so even thanks to Jimmy Stewart's acting years ago, every, every time we hear a bell ring, some of us who've watched that movie enough, right? An angel gets its wings. Eh, sorry. <laughs> You're not going to become an angel at death. The Bible says it's appointed unto mankind once to die. You have one appointment, and it's coming with death. And after this, the judgment. Whose judgment? God's judgment. You better prepare for this in the way that God says to prepare. The simplest statement, perhaps, in all of Scripture that would help you to prepare is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the one who reveals himself in the Old and the New Testaments. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
Now, thirdly, let's go back to our text. Christ has openly, or I should say secondly, sorry, Christ has openly shamed the enemies. Go back to Colossians 2 with me. Verse 15 tells us he's not only disarmed the rulers and authorities of, of the weapon of accusation and the intimidation of a coming death, but he has now put them to open shame. And this is terminology here that describes Jesus putting them to public disgrace, humiliating them. One author writes, to make a public show or spectacle as the Romans did when they exposed their captives and the spoils of the conquered enemies to public view in their triumphal processions. And here in Colossians 2.15, Paul uses the same terminology taken right out, of, uh, right out of his day, right out of his culture. Open shame. That is, Jesus has marched them right into the public eye and exposed them for all that they are. Liars, deceivers, scam artists, intimidators, and bullies. But remember, all those things that we read through the scriptures, they are far inferior to him, conquered and overcome. Christ, by his death on the cross, has actually revealed the true character and nature of these rulers and authorities. He has not only shown them to be the malicious accusers and evil intimidators that they are, but has also now displayed them as the vanquished inferiors that they are. And you and I must not forget that. Don't let them persuade you that they have any power or authority over you because they don't. Thirdly, Christ has won a complete victory. The, the, the term at the end of verse 15 is triumphing over them in him. This is terminology that describes Jesus as leading prisoners of war in a victory procession. And we're not the pr prisoners, the rulers and authorities are. We actually become sharers in the victory. We're part of his, his triumphing army, if you will. And the picture is beautiful. Christ as victor being portrayed for us in, in this triumphal procession, a parade. And I want you to think of it. The enemies that once held people like us under their power, dominating us with justifiable accusations because of our sin and with the intimidating threat of death that is real, have been disarmed and defeated. Hauled through streets against their will, as it were, Jesus the victor saying, see my foes? They're not such a big deal, are they? And they shouldn't be to us. But the last phrase, triumphing over them in him. And I mentioned last week, and, and I don't know how many different English translations of the Bible we have in our presence today. I know some of you carry the ESV, and some of you carry the New American Standard. Some of you probably have the King James Version. There might be an NIV or, or even one of the other uh, newer translations. Um, and I think all of those are valuable, and all of those are important and vital to us to to know the Lord Jesus, but there is, there's a pronoun here that, that can be translated and is translated in two different ways. And it just reflects the fact that the, the Bible scholars sometimes aren't sure which is which. I touched on this briefly last week, but if you're reading the ESV or the NAS, the last word in verse 15 is the word what? Him, right? And so they're taking that little pronoun as having reference specifically to Jesus. Who here is, is reading the King James or the NIV? Okay. And what's the last word in your verse? Verse 15. In it. So what's this about? Well, what would it have reference to? Look at the end of verse 14. All of us are staring at the same word there, nailing it to the cross. 
Well, the whole question in translation, and this is one of the common challenges and has been and always will be, Paul wrote this in Greek. We're not Greek-speaking, Greek-writing people, and, and I'm very grateful that scholars have taken that and put it in my native tongue, um, and I'm sure you are too. But does that last little pronoun have reference to the cross or to Jesus? And you know, probably until we get to heaven and the Lord himself can tell us once and for all, the debate won't be settled. But we should not debate to the point of contention because it is still the same work that's in view, isn't it? It's only Jesus on the cross that saves anybody. So it'd be another discussion if somebody said, well, it's not really Jesus. It's another prophet that we have in view. It's not the cross. It's good works that are in view. No, it's Jesus and his cross. And I want you to be absolutely sure of it. And the triumph that Paul is describing is connected exclusively to Jesus and the cross because that's where he bled and died. And that's where God's wrath was poured out on him. That's where sin was atoned for. And this is what Jesus even had in view when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So either way you go with this translation, you end up at Jesus and the cross. Beloved, that is where the triumph is found and only there. The triumph over your fear of death, the triumph over the intimidation that you sometimes feel from the enemy, uh, the the victory in life, the growth and, and progress that you hope to make cannot be found through your good works and will not. It will not be found in some kind of heritage that you enjoy, past generations of of fathers and grandfathers or mothers and grandmothers who, who set you in this particular course. The triumph is exclusively in Jesus and his cross. Now, as we conclude this morning, I want you to think through uh, some very practical points of what this means for us. First of all, what does this truth mean for me personally? And I want you to think in terms of, okay, so this truth that that we've just studied, what am I wrestling with at at this moment? Are you wrestling even with the devil himself, that nagging sense of guilt that you just can't shake? Do you feel kind of buckled into the car seat of life? I feel like I've sinned. Well, first of all, have you really sinned? And if if God calls it a violation of his law, well, then it's sin. But press on beyond that. Don't Don't just linger in those feelings of guilt, but listen to what God says over your sin, that he will faithfully and justly forgive your sin if you confess it. So have you confessed it? And some of you say, I've confessed it a thousand times and I still feel guilty. Then you know what? This is not a problem of, of lack of forgiveness. This is a problem of, of accepting the testimony of God first in your head and letting that percolate down into your heart and saying, you know what? God says I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. We sang a beautiful line in that new hymn that Kevin uh, and the worship team taught us. And, and that may be a little confusing terminology for, for you all to hear this. I will preach the gospel to myself that I am not a man condemned for Jesus Christ is my defense. That's exactly what we're talking about with truth like this. You feel guilty. The reality is if you've confessed your sin, then God in his faithfulness and justness has forgiven it. And so you preach the gospel to your feelings. A lot of us just live by our feelings though. Oh, I just feel discouraged today. Preach the gospel to your discouragement. Nothing separates me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You start quoting and meditating on, on those powerful gospel truths. And, and so you, you say to your soul, hey, soul, 
Quit wallowing in those false feelings of guilt because your sin has been nailed to the cross. Your soul has been healed by his scars. The weight of guilt you do, you do not bear any longer. And, and then, as the line of that song says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So personally, we speak and we pray this truth against the tempter and accuser when he bullies us. Here's a second question for, asked, for us to ask. What does this truth mean for us as a church family? Now think about this. Think about the mission we're on. Think about the context in which we serve. I had a discussion yesterday with a friend. Had a discussion earlier in the week with another friend just talking about the, 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 the presence of spiritual darkness in this valley. How does it make us feel? How do we respond? What have we experienced? And again, we could all tell stories, but I, I would never want to focus on, on the spiritual forces of darkness, however they're manifesting themselves. What I'd want us to do is to, is to think through truth like this and how our living and service, how our gospel proclamation in this place can and should be done with joy, with confidence, and with expectation. I know that the forces of darkness have long been in control in this valley. And whether it be through a hyper spiritual system that's false at its core or whether it be through just gross immorality that defies God, ignores him, acts as if we're all animals, survival of the fittest. I mean, those are two very different things yet at the core they're the same. They defy God. We need to be hopeful and confident, joyful, even expectant that we're gonna see our Lord triumph because he has done something that matters. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 2, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, listen to this, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. And so there's that same imagery, isn't there, of the triumphal procession. But then Paul goes on to write, who is sufficient for these things? I'm not and neither are you. But listen to his his answer. We are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. These are the the shysters, the, the street showmen, if you will. Paul says, no, as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We're witnesses. I don't know how you're gonna break through in that friendship you have going in the workplace with someone who's so hostile to the gospel. And maybe you're good friends, but anytime you bring it up, they just shut you down. I don't know how you're gonna do it or I'm gonna do it, but I do see in the word that God does that. I've been invited into a conversation, had an opportunity to, to tour the South Jordan Temple twice this week, actually. Once with neighbors and another with friends. And that friend had invited two missionaries and then a uh, a, a retired gentleman who's way up um, in missionary training and all of that. And coming out of that, we start a little conversation. We're going to get together again. And part of me is excited, and part of me just feels like, oh, boy, here we go. What, I mean, what am I going to say? Am I going to have answers? And, and I've, my heart is really settled in part because of this passage. I'm like, you know what? My king already won the victory. So I'm going to go into that joyfully. 
expectantly. And we're going to continue to pray as a church family, God, give us 10 conversions before the end of this year. 10. It doesn't really seem like a lot, does it? Because his truth is powerful and his work is real and his triumph is already in place. So, we worship in this place every Sunday with all that we are and we serve the rest of the hours of the week, whether on the job site or the classroom or the conference table or on a conference call, knowing that we are messengers sent from this king who always causes us to go forward in triumph. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As we've worked through this passage, have you been wrestling with some old sin, some old accusation? Has the Lord helped you to see that as you confess that sin and because of his faithfulness and justness, he forgives and the record has been removed, taken out of the way. You need to step beyond it now by faith and say, you know what, Lord, that sin, as great as it was, it's gone. Thank you. First of all, thank you, Father, that you've removed that record. Now help me to live in light of this powerful forgiveness and help me to live in the confidence and joy that I actually have been counted righteous for Jesus' sake, that his perfect record from his life, from his obedience, is credited to my account. Oh, friend, be done. Be, just be done with the sin that has enslaved you. Would you just pray over that right now, silently? right there in your seat. Others of you would say, I'm not really wrestling with personal guilt or feelings of fear that God doesn't like me, but boy, I I look at what our church is trying to do and called to do and I just think, how in the world? And you've actually been listening to the intimidation of the, the intimidating voice of the adversary who, who says, you know what, you're not big enough or powerful enough. You don't know enough about the Bible to really be an effective witness, and your church is so small and insignificant. I mean, th- this, pal- this, this valley is just locked down under my control. And that would be more reflective of conversations that you have either within your own soul or maybe even with other people. But do you see your Christ in all of his glorious triumph? And do you see that he has positioned you right now, right here, to be his voice? Will you commit yourself to being a voice this week? Say, God, I, I'm a little fearful, but I, I'm willing to open my mouth to testify for Jesus Christ. To speak openly of your glory, of your power, and of your salvation through the cross. However the Lord is impressing your soul, just commit yourself to do it right now. It's so important that we hear the word and then we respond in submission and obedience. So you respond however the Lord's leading you to. Let's pray for just a moment longer. Now, Father in heaven, our fears and doubts and anxieties are many. 
Our struggles are great, but again, we're brought to this place at the cross and see that what you have done in your death has overcome our greatest enemies. You've overcome our sin. You've overcome death itself. You've disarmed Satan, every other ruler and authority who for centuries bullied and intimidated and still, still try to bully and intimidate us. But you are greater. And the testimony of your word is eternal. And the promises you have made, even to ordinary, weak, fearful people like us, is that you will be my witnesses. So Spirit of God, would you come and would you first cleanse and strengthen and sanctify us by this powerful gospel message and then would you fuel our souls and stoke our souls with joy and confidence and hope and expectation that we would go from this place opening our mouths, speaking on your behalf, loving as you have loved, sacrificing as you have modeled for us, but empowering us to do your work right here, right now. All of these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.